Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, actually starting with verse 11. Now the last time we covered the triumphal entry and the, the title to today's message is that the shepherd also has a rod, not to be confused with the shepherd's staff. Now, let's go to shepherding, which still happens today, although modern technology has changed it somewhat. But when you have a shepherd and sheep, they have basically, the shepherd has two basic instruments that he uses. The one is the staff. And the staff is more of a gentle tool. It helps the sheep if they get caught in a thicket. You know, it can wrap around their legs. It can do different things, gently bring the sheep back if they're, you know, kind of going out into the wrong direction. So this is a tool of nurturing, a tool of comfort. However, the rod is a tool of a lot of different things, some associated in negative, but really, you know, spiritually we need both. The rod is a tool, it might, might be a little heavier, a little shorter. Um, it's a tool that the shepherd will use to defend the sheep against predators. It's also a rod of correction for the sheep, and sometimes the rod can be used almost as a boomerang. So if the sheep are kind of getting out and the shepherd can't reach them, he'll throw the rod at the sheep and bonk them, and they'll realize, oh, looking around, I probably should be over there. Boomerang for us that speak English. To my Spanish-speaking friends, we can call this la chancla, huh? See? <laughs> okay. Now, in a spiritual sense, we need both as well. You know, God is, he has a dual nature. And the Psalm of the Good Shepherd is a, really a, a psalm of, of God and a precursor to Jesus Christ because as a dual nature God, God is a God of, of justice, of the punishment needs to fit the crime, of correction, of discipline. But God is also a God of mercy, of grace. And you know what's interesting? Both of these tools, the shepherd's tools, the good shepherds, meet at the cross. Amen? Right? For us, 2,000 years ago, um, Jesus died for our sins, and he did pay the penalty of sin. He did appease God's justice and his jurisprudence. But um, over here... <laughs> but he did that with mercy and, and grace. So he took the, pe the penalty and the punishment so we wouldn't have to. Right? And again, we need both. Psalm 23, 4 says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This, this is a comfort too, because it helps to keep us from really going off the deep end, going down the wrong path. Now, this morning, we're going to look at Jesus, really, um, using the rod, the rod of correction. Now, for some, you might be offended because as we really go into the scripture, it might be a side of the Lord that maybe you're not familiar with. Maybe you haven't read enough of the Gospels to know about it. I'm going to tell you that in the rest of this chapter, we can't really view Jesus as nice. But that's a weak word anyway. Do we really always want to be nice? Sometimes we have to be necessary in replacement of being nice. We're going to look at what Jesus does here. Now, Jesus... Again, why do we maybe feel these ways or the, the word nice and <clears throat> leaders have to be nice and God has to be nice to me and 
we pretty much make God in our own image, forgetting the whole other nature of who God is to make him complete, because love has to be balanced. But really, it's because of a brainwashing by society. Right? Society. I, actually, I saw a movie that was very, very um, clean movie called The Giver. I don't know if you've seen that. But it almost is, a, in a sense, where this country is it's a possible future for us. Everything is sanitized. There's no passion. There's no emotion. There's no strong feelings. And it's a really neat movie because one person actually breaks free from that. But society will tell us to be nice. Society will tell us, don't be passionate. We have a bunch of leaders in our country that have a hard time making decisions. Right? They're phlegmatic. They're reactionary. But that wasn't Jesus. See, Jesus didn't, didn't not, unlike a politician, Jesus didn't contact Pew Research and say, hey, I'm thinking of overturning the tables. What do you think the public would think about that? You know, go out and poll Jerusalem. Well, a thousand respondents said, 70% think it's a bad idea. See, Jesus didn't do that. Right? In his infinite wisdom, literally as God, he made these decisions. He was a good decision maker. And we're going to look at three instances where the rod was used. So I'm just kind of preparing you for that. So we're going to jump in in verse 11. It says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Now when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So you see this back and forth. Jesus stayed outside of Jerusalem, but, and we're a few days out from the cross. right? In a few days, he's going to be crucified. And he would come into Jerusalem, and he would continue to teach. He would continue to instruct. He would ramp up his um, doctrine and, and also the things that we needed to know. Um, making sure the disciples understood about the crucifixion coming up and his uh, resurrection as well. But he's also investigating. He's looking at the temple and he sees things he doesn't like. The temple was a building and it had several courts like that ran concentric circles around the temple. And he would go in and he would see things that, well, we'll talk about it. He cleansed the temple. In other words, he made a mess of the place. And all the, the corruption that was in it, he tried to really overturn it. And we'll look at that. In verse 12 through 14, which we covered the last time, was really his first instance in this chapter that he was using the rod, in a sense that Jesus cursed the fig tree, and from the roots to the top, the poor fig tree, right? That's a terrible thing. Jesus, you, that's not nice. Why would you, you know, in, that, in the prime of its life, why would you curse that poor fig tree? But see, Jesus had to use an illustration with the fig tree. He had to make sure that Israel knew that if they didn't change, judgment was coming. So that's a warning. And I have to be honest with you. If I'm going to walk off of a cliff and I don't see where I'm going, you might have to, to save my life, yell at me, Pastor Joe! Or you might have to take a lasso and rope me and pull me off that, that precipice. I might be annoyed at you at first, but when I realize what you did for me, I'm actually going to be pleased. And I'm going to see that you showed me love because warning equals love. So we, we have to understand that. Warnings are actually merciful. And that's what Jesus was trying to do. Verse 15, So they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and all the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, uh, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. 
And when evening had come, he went out of the city. This is for you Bible students. This is the second time. This wasn't the first time he did this. This was the second time he cleansed the temple. He did a similar thing, uh, I believe, back in John chapter 2. And he actually made a whip of cords to get the animals out, to get the, the, the money off the tables. This is God's house. Jesus is like, what are you guys doing? So this is the end of his ministry. So this is the second time he's cleansing the temple. Now, he- secular history tells us, and it completely lines up with Bible history, that the priesthood and the religious system was corrupt. We have our, well, we have a historian called uh, Titus Flavius Josephus, who was a Roman historian, and some will say, well, he was biased. Well, check this out. Did you know that Titus Flavius Josephus was born Yosef ben Metatiahu? He was from a priestly line, a Jewish man. As a matter of fact, in the first Roman-Jewish war, he was on the inside with the Sicarii, with the dagger men, fighting off the Romans. Then eventually he was captured. So he got to see both sides. And he wrote about the rampant corruption in the temple, right? And in the, in the spiritual system. Now, there are a few things were going on. Number one was, if you were to give to the, the temple treasury... They would want Jewish money. They would want a shekel. But everybody was using Roman money because, hey, we're in the first century. You've got to get with the times. So they would have a, an exchange rate going on where they would take your Gentile money and they would exchange it for something adequate to put in the temple treasury, but, it, but their interest rates or their usury rates were very high. So they would charge you big time for this exchange. The second thing that would happen was if you would bring in your animal to sacrifice, they would purposely find some type of pimple or hair follicle or ingrown hair and, and they would have an issue with your animal, make you buy their animal, again, at absorbent rates. The biggest insult probably was the fact that those who sold doves, you're like, well, what's the, what's the issue with the doves? The doves were a poor man's sacrifice. It was the only thing a poor person could afford. So the fact that they sold doves and they would see your dove and say it's defective, they even ripped off the poor people. So that was the insult of insults. This was abhorrent to God, and the temple needed to be cleansed. Now, we see problems in religion with teaching and behavior. So if a person's teaching is weak, it's really not based in the scripture, give it some time, the behavior of the person or the clergy will start to change as well. Here's another thing. If the behavior is poor, or if the behavior is ungodly, then what you'll have is the teaching will start to get watered down. It'll start to become very light because there's no conviction anymore. There's no passion in the word because the person knows that they're a walking hypocrite. Understand this too, that this isn't just a history lesson. You're going to find that I'm going to flip-flop because it's so easy to say, oh yeah, the first century, man, they were bad. But we're the church. I mean, we're great. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to make some analogies of religion today and what it's kind of devolved into. But we also need to make an application in our hearts. The Bible tells us that we are, we have a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit resides in us. I tell you what, I'll be the first one to raise my hand and read this and say, I could make some changes. How about you? Amen? Because we are carrying the light of God. We're supposed to be a city set on the hill. I mean, listen, we're not perfect, but I think at times we could read something like this and do a better job and consider cleansing our own temples. I mean, this isn't just a history lesson. This is something that we take in 2014, take it home, and apply it to our lives. The other issue was the Jewish system 
not all the Jewish people, but a lot in the leadership, and not all of the leadership. We know Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, Gamaliel, these were good people. They were righteous leaders, but a lot of them were not that were running the place. They were a bad witness. Now, I can just see that Jesus, as he starts to overturn the tables and throw everything around, could you, there were soldiers around. This is the season of the Passover. They flooded Jerusalem with, with um, um, pilgrims. So the Romans flooded Jerusalem with soldiers because there was always a fight. There was always a messianic fervor. Something was going to break out. I could just picture the Romans looking at what Jesus was doing and, and kind of going like this, looking the other way. Hey, those hypocrites deserve that. At least somebody had the guts to say something to them. It's a bad witness. Remember when King David sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah indirectly and Nathan came to him and God told him through Nathan, you have given the enemies of God a reason to blaspheme, David. You should know better. You know, you're supposed to be setting the example of the nation of Israel. But because of this sin, those people are just, you're giving them a reason to blaspheme God. It's kind of sad. And I got to tell you, sometimes unbelievers, and it's mean. We live in a very mean society. I think the worst thing that happens today is when you look at any article, they let people comment on these articles, no matter what it is. People are nasty. And then people are nasty with each other. They're fighting with each other over the comments in the article. And it doesn't matter what the subject is. It could be sports. It could be crime. It could be politics. It could be religion. And it gets nasty. So this is what's going on. And... It's a sad thing. And what happens when a pastor falls into sin or a Christian loses in a court case, unbelievers seem to rejoice. And then we get mad at them. But should we? Maybe some of what they're saying is right. Maybe they're pointing out hypocrisy. You know, there was a guy who um, did some work on my house a few months ago, and I witnessed to him, I gave him a Bible, and, and he was really resistant at first. And he told me about his family and that his, he comes from a family of clergy, and he says they preach and they raise their hands and they sing and then they get drunk on the weekends and do bad things. And he goes, I don't, he didn't really want anything to do with Christianity. You know what I find myself doing? I just sit and I listen. And I let them vent. I don't get mad. I let them vent. Sometimes I agree with them. And they're like, you're a pastor. How could you agree? I'm like, because I've seen it too. And it's things that we shouldn't be doing, and I'm sorry you've had to see that. And Matthew 7 says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but we have to know him. There needs to be a personal relationship with him. i got to tell you, if we don't see problems in the Western church, we're either oblivious to it or we're part of the problem. We're infected by it. And we need to be as equally disgusted by our own hypocrisy. I don't like when I'm a hypocrite, and I have been a hypocrite. I'm just going to have full disclosure here, you know what I'm saying, as your pastor. Sometimes I'm a hypocrite, and I don't like it. You know, It's not always somebody else's fault. Verse 15 and 16, the second instance that Jesus uses the rod. Now, let's go through this. He does a few things, and I'm going to take it in, in blocks, in like little bullet points. Number one, Jesus drove out the merchants. It doesn't mean he got in his VW bus and got, you know, he drove them out of the place. That's not what it means. He drove them out by some type of physical something, right? I mean, we don't exactly know how, but he drove out the merchants. He overturned the tables of the money changers. And three, he overturned the seats of the dove sellers. Right? And four, he impeded those carrying their wares through the temple. Somehow he blocked them. Or he put his hands up and said, you can't do that. Now we have to really, really think about this. 
How did he do it? He had to do it by physical force. Now, the Bible doesn't say he assaulted anybody because he did everything without sin. But could you imagine the scene? Well, that felt good. <laughs> anybody need change to get something after? <laughs> That's probably about one-twentieth of what actually happened when the Lord did this right? Think about that. And I just have a vivid imagination. I look at the Bible and I read it. Honestly, I do my errands first. I actually read the Bible when everything else is done because I don't want to be interrupted, right? And I'm, I read it and I'm like, whoa! And, and I'm just in my mind picturing Jesus opening the cages, freeing the doves and just doves flying all over the place just to get out. There's money all over the place. And these guys who are greedy, they're chasing the money, bumping into each other. I mean, it just must have been, the scene must have been chaotic. But it gets your attention, doesn't it? It's effective. You know, Christians, we need not to be cowards. Sometimes there's a time to stand up and there's a time to say enough. And this is a, a, a side of God that people are uncomfortable with. I love preaching the, you know, we, we preach the, the stories and the, the, he's on the sea and the disciples are worried and he comforts them and that's all great stuff. But this needs to be preached too. God is the God of discipline. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of correction. This stuff is necessary. And the Bible says that judgment starts at the house of God. It always has. For the Jews back then and for the church, the New Testament tells us, starts at the house of God. Now in verse 17, Jesus, he's upset. He says, it is written, my house, God's house, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This meant that even before the Messiah, the Jewish people were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles and attract them towards the monotheistic God, the true God. This comes from uh, Jesus' quotes from really Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 11. My house is a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a, th a den of thieves. And I hear this too when I try to talk to people about the Lord. Oh, they just want my money. That is like the number one. Somebody should do a poll. The top ten complaints about why somebody doesn't want to become a Christian. Number one, they just want my money. That's definitely up in the top three. You know, as spiritual leaders, if we would just prioritize prayer and make that the most important thing in our lives, God will fix everything else. We won't have to resort to nefarious tactics and bullying and manipulation. You know, it's, it's, you start with prayer. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Not all your wish lists, but all of our needs. This is important stuff. Sadly, the prosperity gospel has legitimized the idea of the den of thieves. I read a, an article recently, it talked about the the 10 uh, richest preachers. And the one, actually T.D. Jakes, he's worth $150 million. And it goes all the way down to somebody who's worth a mere $27 million. But you got Jakes, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland doesn't just have a private jet, he has a hangar full of airplanes. And he's still begging for money. How do these guys with a straight face ask anybody for money? It gets worse. I've read some investigative reports that Kenneth Copeland 
on, on several occasions, well, the way he preaches, it's manipulative. So somebody who's a cancer patient, well, you know, you just got to have faith. And by the way, send me a check. And you got these cancer patients, this is real stuff, who don't even get their treatment. They're sending all their money to Copeland and then they die. What kind of a witness is that? And here's the sad part. There's a lot of Christians that support this garbage. They buy his books and, his, and some people are so enamored by them. I don't get it. Listen, it's not a sin to be wealthy, but the way these guys do it, they're like the modern day money changers and Christians are supporting them because they don't, they don't have discernment. It's sad, it really is. While referring to the Den of Thieves characterization, David Guzik said, this is a great quote, he said, quote, it's a sorry, shameful condition when the house of God, don't just think about the temple, becomes a place where unrepentant, active sinners can associate and hide, end quote. There was a term back in the days of the Roman Empire called, it's a long word, Corinthians, Corinthians I should have tried, practiced it a few times, let's try that again, Corinthismi. And what it was, was if you were a fornicator, you were called this, but guess where the word came from? The Corinthian church. The, the Christian Corinthian church was so bad, it had such a bad reputation that they coined terms. Pretty sad, isn't it? Listen, yeah, in, in a sense, the church is a hospital. But here's the, the thing that I kind of came up with on my own. Come sick. Come sick. Oh, well, I'm into this, Pastor Joe. You wouldn't want me. No, we, we do. Well, I do this. No, no, come sick, but leave healed. Isn't that important? You see, when I sin, I don't come up here from the pulpit and say, well, guess what I did last night? Hey, let's all do that. Let's all sin together. We don't want to infect each other. What we want to do is grieve about our sins and repent, right? The problem is when sick people come and they purposely spread this stuff around the church. And that's what happened in Corinth. So come sick. It may take months. It may take years. But leave healed. Let the Lord work on us so that we can get healed. In the wake of this uh, holy bolus scare, don't cough on others, okay, spiritually. So, verse 18. It says, the people were astonished at his teachings. This could be translated that the people were astonished by the actions of his instructions. They had never seen anything like this before. They had ne never seen anybody stand up to the religious leaders. They had never seen anybody stand up to hypocrisy. You know how they, they uh, dealt with the problems? They just left. They just turned from God. And people do that today, too. They just, they just quit on God because of some of his representatives that he might not even be empowering. I love the part about Jesus that he was passionate. You know, he was passionate when he was on earth and the Father was in the heavens. And, and we need to emulate that as well, to be passionate for the Lord. That's a good thing. And this is what balanced love looks like. Now, after all this happened, remember we talked about the chaos, the coins, the tables, the animals, the doves, the people running back and forth. What happened? In Matthew's Gospel 21.4, it said that after this incident, while the dust was probably still settling and the coins were making noises as they were coming to a halt, the blind and the lame came to Jesus to be healed. So the hands that violently removed the merchandise and freed the animals were the same hands that touched and healed the sick. See, that's our Father God. That's the beauty of our Father, how, how balanced He is, how He can have those two natures and not be inconsistent with each other. What He did was He cleansed God's house from wicked men so that the true needy in society could get the ministering that they needed and so badly desired. I can imagine them all coming. 
into the temple. And they weren't allowed there before because they didn't have money or because they were unclean or because of whatever the, the case may be. But now they were allowed to come in. This is a picture of a balanced God. And we get to meet God on our terms. God is a God of judgment. Yes, there is a real hell. We do preach it because Jesus speaks about it so many times. There's no way to make people feel better. I can sanitize it from the word and I will not. And none of the pastors will do that. However, we get to meet God on our terms. We can meet him in judgment. We can thumb our nose at him. We can tell him, I'm going to rebel about you until the very last day and then we have to deal with him in judgment. And that's not going to be pretty for us. Or we could meet God now. We could meet those loving hands. right? The ones that say, depart from me, I never knew you. But to us, the hands come out and say, well done, thy good and faithful uh, servant. Come and enjoy the joy of the Lord. Those gentle, fatherly hands. But that is the only way we can do that is through Jesus Christ. It's through the cross. That's important to understand as well. You know, we can't go wrong when we emulate balanced love. Today, unfortunately, we see in some ministries that um, some want to become popular, celebrity pastors, and it never ends well. It never does. Because that type of behavior, at the very least, leads to very diluted preaching. You know, David was a, a tender shepherd boy, but the Bible says when the lion, and then on a separate occasion, the bear came and tried to attack and kill his sheep, he, slew, he slayed them. Right? So, and, and that's that, again, dual nature that we're supposed to have. It's kind of funny that, uh, you know, I think it's, I just, I'm blessed to be a part of this fellowship. I just think that, I mean, we're, we're the perfect size. Uh, people know each other. We, we see each other outside of the church. You know, a lot of people make friends. And uh, are we really ever off duty when we're a Christian? I mean, if we saw each other in the stop and shop or one of the stores, would we say hello to each other? Would we recognize each other? I mean, these are important things. Because back in the day, in, in the book of Acts, it was like a family environment. Everybody did things together, and they broke bread. And we were talking about this um, recently and in a small devotion. Actually, it was at the Berean Room. I can't remember where I am anymore. I have so many days run into the other. And Pastor Vinny read it in Acts chapter 2. And they broke bread, and they had communion, and they, they prayed, and they just seemed so content and at peace. And it was a trying time. You know, persecution was coming. There was poverty. Uh, churches had to lend other churches or give each other money because there was no money. But they had this koinonia. They had this communion. And today, it's funny, the more we get into social media, the more we get followers on Facebook, the more we can actually sit in front of a computer with no human beings around us, we become more isolated from each other. You know, I had to tell you the other, uh, not too long ago, I was out on patrol and we had uh, some of our teens from this church uh, pulling into a convenience store really late at night. And I pulled out and they pulled in and we waved and I thought, no, let me go back in there because, you know, it's late at night. And so they get out and we chat briefly. They go into the, the convenience store and then they get out. So I say, okay, ladies. And they're awesome kids. They did nothing wrong. They're super kids. I said, all right, lady, check this out. You see that car over there with the tinted windows and the vapor coming out of the tailpipe? I said, there's somebody sitting in there. I said, he's watching the store. I said, you see that car over there by the air pumps? That guy's been sitting there, you know, just hanging out by the air pumps. I said, ladies, you need to take an inventory of your environment. Look at the cars around you. Look alive. Don't look like a victim. Don't look down. And it was kind of funny because I was kind of giving them some fatherly instruction. You know, I read about what happens in the news. 
And there needs to be a class for young women who are disappearing, and it's like an epidemic in our country. So and they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I said, and next self-defense class at the church, I want to see you signed up. So, and then I followed them out and made sure they, they got on their way. And I, I told their mom, and she goes, thank you for looking out for my kids. You know, I mean, really, we, we have to have a balanced nature. Would that be necessarily considered nice? Maybe not, but it's effective, you know? We have to get out of the stereotypes that the political correctness in the world are trying to put us in because it doesn't fit. We don't wear it well as a church. And when we try to do it, it almost, ma- almost makes us look inconsistent. So, you know, it's just something to consider. Now, when we start to take this all to- together, actually, and we jump into verse 20, there's this one last uh, part of it here, which I kind of covered before, but I want to go over it briefly because I didn't go through all of it. Verse 20, it says, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots, and Peter, remembering, said to him, Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things that he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, we covered this last Sunday, but I just wanted to look at some ideas about prayer. Okay, we have to take all the scripture into context. This is very important. I'm going to go through four, five caveats here. The first one is that Jesus is not speaking to the crowd. He's speaking to his disciples. Well, what does that matter, Pastor Joe? Everything. It's context. Some of the stuff that you hear from the Osteens will tell you that you just pray and you just pray your open-ended carnal prayer and God will answer your prayers. And for the large majority of people, that doesn't happen because it's not scriptural. Prayer is not an open-ended wish list for carnal, shallow people. However, if we're close disciples of the Lord, the second caveat, we will pray in God's will. And that's found in 1 John 5, 14 through 15. The closer we get to God, the more we study his word, the more we will be in tune with what he thinks because he's got it laid out right in in black and white for us to read. The third caveat is that when we are praying and we are seeking the Lord as disciples of the Lord, we won't be in a persistent lifestyle of sin. And we can find that in Psalm 66, 18. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It means that we don't make a lifestyle of sin and think that we can be double-minded. And the fourth caveat here is in 1 Peter 3, 7, for us married men, how can we expect to have our, our prayers answered if we're not treating our wives properly? It's right in the scripture. He says that your prayers may not be hindered, men, married men. Okay? So if we pray according to God's will, we can move a mountain or wither a fig tree. Now this comes from Matthew 20, 21, the parallel scripture, where Jesus makes the connection, where he doesn't do it here in Mark, but Matthew records Jesus speaking about the fig tree and then speaking about moving a mountain. It says you basically could do anything as long as these caveats are fulfilled. So if we kind of go out and just for fun, we go out and look at the purple plum and we all try our best to wither it, if it's not in God's will and it's just for a show, it's probably not going anywhere. You know, and it's good because that's a nice tree out there. <laughs> so verse 25, last caveat here, is that... He says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. 
So this is the fifth caveat is that we walk in forgiveness. And we do that. We're taking communion today, and we always have a moment to just, you know, not say anything out loud, but in our hearts, you know, Lord, what is it you want me to reveal? You know, who's that person that comes to mind? Who have I not forgiven? That can be a tough thing because forgiveness can be a process. But you know what? We're making the attempt. Lord, I really, really want it to be in my heart. You need to help me with this. Now, in Luke 17, 3, Jesus speaks about forgiveness, and he speaks about this forgiveness relationship where repentance comes first. Repentance is a, a change of direction so that when the forgiveness takes place, it's built back on a good foundation. Now, if somebody comes up to you and is manipulating you and say, you have to forgive me, and they're kind of giving you a hard time, that kind of ruins the spirit of forgiveness. And I hate to see brothers and sisters get manipulated. But forgiveness looks like this. There's forgiveness... There's the action of the heart, and then there's fruits of repentance. So if the person you know, is doing the, causing the trouble, they actually show fruits of repentance, wanting that restoration. All right? Then the restoration comes, and then the regained trust. And we know there's people that we've forgiven completely from the heart, but we, we want to see that trust be built up again. Amen? I mean, especially if it has something to do with our kids or watching our kids or something that was really damaging that we want to see those fruits of repentance, we want to see the restoration, and we want to see that trust get built up again. The funny thing about trust is it's like a house with a wrecking ball. It takes a long time, brick by brick, to build that trust into a beautiful edifice. But all it takes is one swing of the wrecking ball to knock it all down, one action, one event, and then you're left with bricks and and debris all over the place, and then you have to clean it up and then build that brick by brick again. So it's, it's an interesting thing there. And here's the last thing I want to say is this, that sometimes we read the scripture and we think about somebody that we have something against or somebody that hurt us. Brothers and sisters, if we have five or six or seven people we have issues with and we always think that they hurt us, there's something wrong. There's something wrong in our own hearts because sometimes we're the problem. Amen? Sometimes we have to look at the situation and say, what do I own? What did I do? Who can I go to and say, I'm sorry? And sometimes the Lord will put a person like that on your heart. I've been there. Hey, would you, would you accept you know, my hand of, you know, ask for forgiveness? And that's, that's a beautiful thing. So in, in the scripture here, th- there's an issue with God forgiving us. We also have to have a spirit of forgiveness. And there's a parable that goes along with that as well. We can't expect to have all the fruits of God and then do nothing that he says. He is the God of forgiveness, and he expects us to forgive as well. Verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Now, this is the religious echelon. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what, by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, you ever been in these conversations? Instead of just telling the truth, you know, you, well, how is this going to look to everybody? Well, how is this going to come off to the rest of my family? Well, how am I going to sell this? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. 
So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's the religious leaders that everybody's looking to, and their answer is, we don't know. Wait, wait a minute, this is a spiritual issue. We just don't know. Why? Because they didn't want to answer truthfully. They knew what the answer was. Here's the problem. Jesus cleanses the temple. He heals the sick. He's teaching. The religious leaders are starting to lose their place. Okay? And actually, it was lucrative to them as well. There was not only an authority issue, but there was a financial issue at stake. They needed to do something to challenge his authority to get him out of that position. And we know in a few days they end up crucifying him. Organized religion tries to do this sometimes too. To me, if I see somebody preaching out on the corner in Jamesburg, I don't go, hey, hey, are you from Calvary Crossfields? Using the Bible? Uh-huh. Using the scripture accurately and contextually? Uh-huh. Praise the Lord, brother. I'll be praying for you. Right? I mean, what, are we going to start stopping people? Jesus said the same thing to his own disciples. You know, they were casting out demons down there, and Jesus said, leave them alone. You know? He, if he's for me, if he's doing this, he can't be against me. He can't speak evil of me. So Jesus ends up putting them in a precarious position. Even today, and, and when we're in leadership, we have two choices. We can either just be honest and tell people the truth, even though it could cause somebody to leave the church, somebody to not like us. Okay, those are the breaks. Or we can try to tell everybody everything they want to hear and we become a prevaricator. We become double-tongued. And there's some preachers and stuff who do this. They just don't want to say anything negative. So to each person, they say something different and it's inconsistent. And then when they start comparing notes, the person is, is double-tongued. Imagine Jeremiah. Jeremiah, um, he wrote 52 chapters. Well, it was written about him, Jeremiah, and the book of Lamentations. God sent them to do a very difficult thing. Tell those people, this is bad. The spiritual situ situation is bad. The, 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 the national security of, of the nation is bad. And Jeremiah's like, oh, he's like, I got to do this. It was tough. And they beat him up and they threw him in a cistern and they left him for dead. They do all this thing. Imagine if, if Jeremiah didn't want to do the hard things. The book of Jeremiah, instead of 52 chapters, would be one paragraph. The Lord told me to do this. I got really scared. I decided not to do it. That's the end of the story. We wouldn't have Jeremiah. We wouldn't have Lamentations. We have to be accurate. We have to tell people the truth. And this is the third instance and the last instance before we close where Jesus uses the rod. Out of context, somebody could read this and say, how could this be scripture? Jesus, he, he came off snarky and dismissive and you know, he was disrespectful to those leaders. First of all, they didn't belong to be in that position. He called them whitewashed tombs. He did a lot of things. Matthew 23, if you haven't seen snarky until you read Matthew 23. I mean, that is an awesome chapter. But it needed to be done. Taking everything into account, it's so cool to watch Jesus work. It's so cool to watch him encourage people, raise the dead, weep when somebody dies, you know, love them, take their hand, put his fingers on their eyes, rejoice with people. But it's also nice watching Jesus have the guts and the fortitude to say what's right, no matter what the consequences are. And we do well if we emulate that to stand up when we're supposed to stand up, to say that's wrong when something's wrong, to, to love and to show compassion when that happens. And God will call us to do both. We have to make a personal application here. So the first thing is, how do we receive correction from the Lord? 
What about from those in authority over us? Do we take it to heart or do we just resist? Do we say, well, listen, I have followers on Facebook. You know, people like my posts. I cannot be flawed. <laughs> this cannot be happening. You don't understand. I have this following and I have 50 followers and that's, that's the mentality today. Are we faithful to mete out discipline and correction when we're called to? Or do we cower or pass the buck? Let somebody else do it. They're good with confrontation. I don't like confrontation. What about when we're in a position to protect somebody? To stand up and protect somebody and say that's wrong. To give the hard truth, even though we might not be viewed as nice. Well, Jesus wasn't viewed as nice in this chapter. Or we can resort to phoniness and being plastic, and, and there's a lot of that in the body of Christ. One of the things I love about the Lord is that his dual nature merged so beautifully together. He had this, um, he was a faithful disciplinarian, but he was also a nurturer. And he did both with equal passion. See, the rod of discipline, without the staff of nurturing and love, is harsh and cruel. Nobody wants that. But the staff of nurturing, without the rod of discipline and correction, is lawlessness, chaotic, and can lead to death. Definitely with a shepherd and his sheep, and definitely with people, and I've seen it firsthand. Sometimes people say, hey man, where's the love? Sometimes the answer is, love is exactly the reason why I'm not going to enable you to do this again. It's because I love you and one day you'll understand. Everything we read in the Bible can and should apply to our own lives. And I pray today as we leave here, that as we look at the balance of God's love, that we also emulate that same type of balanced love in our own lives. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.